Section 10 of Three Science Fiction Novellas by Lee Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 10 of Enchantress of Venus. Trion led the way down, into darkness that was lighted only by the dim fires they themselves woke in passing. No currents ran here. The red gas lay dull and stagnant, closed within the walls of a square passage built of the same black stone. These are the crypts, he said, the labyrinth that is shown on the chart my father found. And he told about the chart as Vara had. He led the way surely, his misshapen body moving without hesitation past the mouths of branching corridors and the doors of chambers whose interiors were lost in shadow. The history of the city is here, all the books and the learning that they had not the heart to destroy. There are no weapons. They were not a warlike people, and I think that the force we of the Holari have used differently was defensive only, protection against the beasts and the raiding primitives of the swamps. With a great effort, Stark wrenched his thoughts away from the light burden he carried. I thought, he said dully, that the crypts were under the wrecked building. So we all thought. We were intended to think so. That is why the building was wrecked. And for sixteen years we of the Lahari have killed men and women with dragging the stones of it away. But the temple was shown also in the chart. We thought it was there merely as a landmark, an identification for the great building. But I began to wonder, how long have you known? Not long, perhaps two reigns. It took many seasons to find the secret of this passage. I came here at night when the others slept. "'And you didn't tell?' "'No,' said Trion. "'You are thinking that if I had told, "'there would have been an end to the slavery and the death. "'But what then? "'My family turned loose with the power to destroy a world, "'as this city was destroyed? "'No, it was better for the slaves to die.' "'He motioned Stark aside. "'Then, between the doors of gold that stood ajar.' into a vault so great that there was no guessing its size in the red and shrouding gloom. This was the burial place of their kings, said Trion softly. Leave the little one here. Stark looked around him, still too numb to feel awe, but impressed even so. They were set in straight lines, the beds of black marble, lines so long that there was no end to them except the limit of vision. And on them slept the old kings, their bodies, marvelously embalmed, covered with silken palls, their hands crossed upon their breasts, their wise unhuman faces stamped with the mark of peace. Very gently, Stark laid Zareth down on a marble couch, and covered her also with silk, and closed her eyes and folded her hands. And it seemed to him that her face, too, had that look of peace. He went out with Trion, thinking that none of them had earned a better place in the Hall of Kings than Zareth. Trion, he said. Yes? That prophecy you spoke when I came to the castle, I will bear it out. Trion nodded. That is the way of prophecies. He did not return toward the temple, but led the way deeper into the heart of the catacombs. A great excitement burned within him a bright and terrible thing that communicated itself to Stark. 
Creon had suddenly taken on the stature of a figure of destiny, and the earthman had the feeling that he was in the grip of some current that would plunge on irresistibly until everything in its path was swept away. Stark's flesh quivered. They reached the end of the corridor at last, and there, in the red gloom, a shape sat waiting before a black, barred door. A shape grotesque and incredibly misshapen, so horribly malformed that by it Trion's crippled body appeared almost beautiful. Yet its face was as the faces of the images and the old kings, and its sunken eyes had once held wisdom, and one of its seven-fingered hands were still slim and sensitive. Stark recoiled. The thing made him physically sick, and he would have turned away, but Trion urged him on. Go closer. It is dead, embalmed, but it has a message for you. It has waited all this time to give that message. Reluctantly, Stark went forward. Quite suddenly, it seemed that the thing spoke. Behold me, look upon me, and take counsel before you grasp that power which lies beyond the door. Stark leaped back, crying out, and Trion smiled. It was so with me, but I have listened to it many times since then. It speaks not with a voice, but within the mind, and only when one has passed a certain spot. Stark's reasoning mind pondered over that. A thought record, obviously triggered off by an electronic beam. The ancients had taken good care that their warning would be heard and understood by anyone who should solve the riddle of the catacombs. Thought images, speaking directly to the brain, know no barrier of time or language. He stepped forward again, and once more the telepathic voice spoke to him. We tampered with the secrets of the gods. We intended no evil, but it was only that we loved perfection, and wished to shape all living things as flawless as our buildings and our gardens. We did not know that it was against the law. I was one of those who found the way to change the living cell. We used the unseen force that comes from the land of the gods beyond the sky, and we so harnessed it that we could build from the living flesh as the potter builds from the clay. We healed the halt and the maimed, and made those stand tall and straight who came crooked from the egg, and for a time we were as brothers to the gods themselves. I myself, even I, knew the glory of perfection. And then came the reckoning. The cell, once made to change, would not stop changing. The growth was slow, and for a while we did not notice it, but when we did it was too late. We were becoming a city of monsters, and the force we had used was worse than useless, for the more we tried to mold the monstrous flesh to its normal shape, the more the stimulated cells grew and grew, until the bodies we labored over were like things of wet mud that flow and change even as you look at them. One by one the people of the city destroyed themselves, and those of us who were left realized the judgment of the gods and our duty. We made all things ready and let the Red Sea hide us forever from our own kind and those who should come after. Yet we did not destroy our knowledge. Perhaps it was our pride only that forbade us, but we could not bring ourselves to do it. 
Perhaps other gods, other races wiser than we, can take away the evil and keep only the good. For it is good for all creatures to be, if not perfect, at least strong and sound. But heed this warning, whoever you may be that listen. If your gods are jealous, if your people have not the wisdom or the knowledge to succeed where we failed in controlling this force, then touch it not, or you and all your people will become as I. The voice stopped. Stark moved back again and said to Treon incredulously, And your family would ignore that warning? Treon laughed. They are fools. They are cruel and greedy and very proud. They would say that this is a lie to frighten away intruders, or that human flesh would not be subject to the laws that govern the flesh of reptiles. They would say anything, because they have dreamed this dream too long to be denied. Stark shuddered and looked at the black door. The thing ought to be destroyed. Yes, said Treon softly. His eyes were shining, looking into some private dream of his own. He started forward, and when Stark would have gone with him, he thrust him back, saying, No, you have no part in this. He shook his head. I have waited, he whispered, almost to himself. The winds bade me wait, until the day was ripe to fall from the tree of death. I have waited, and at dawn I knew, for the wind said, Now is the gathering of the fruit at hand. He looked suddenly at Stark, and his eyes had in them a clear sanity, for all their feigness. You heard, Stark. We made those stand tall and straight who came crooked from the egg. I will have my hour. I will stand as a man for the little time that is left. He turned, and Stark made no move to follow. He watched Treon's twisted body recede, white against the red dusk, until it passed the monstrous watcher and came to the black door. The long, thin arms reached up and pushed the bar away. The door swung slowly back. Through the opening, Stark glimpsed a chamber that held a structure of crystal rods and discs mounted on a frame of metal, the whole thing glowing and glittering with a restless bluish light that dimmed and brightened as though it echoed some vast pulse beat. There was another apparatus, intricate banks of tubes and condensers, but this was the heart of it, and the heart was still alive. Treon passed within and closed the door behind him. Stark drew back some distance from the door and its guardian, crouched down, and set his back against the wall. He thought about the apparatus. Cosmic rays, perhaps, the unseen force that came from beyond the sky. Even yet, all their potentialities were not known but a few luckless spacemen had found that, under certain conditions, they could do amazing things to human tissue. It was a line of thought Stark did not like at all. He tried to keep his mind away from Treon entirely. He tried not to think at all. It was dark there in the corridor, and very still, and the shapeless horror sat quiet in the doorway and waited with him. Stark began to shiver, a shallow animal twitching of the flesh. He waited. After a while he thought Treon must be dead, but he did not move. He did not wish to go into that room to see. He waited. 
Suddenly he leaped up, cold sweat bursting out all over him. A crash that echoed down the corridor, a crashing of shattered crystal, and a high singing note that trailed off into nothing. The door opened. A man came out. A man tall and straight and beautiful as an angel. A strong-limbed man with Treon's face, Treon's tragic eyes. And behind him the chamber was dark. The pulsing heart of power had stopped. The door was shut and barred again. Treon's voice was saying, There are records left, and much of the apparatus, so that the secret is not lost entirely. Only it is out of reach. He came to Stark and held out his hand. Let us fight together as men, and do not fear. I shall die long before this body changes. He smiled, the remembered smile that was full of pity for all living things. I know, for the winds have told me. Stark took his hand and held it. Good, said Treon. And now lead on, stranger with the fierce eyes. For the prophecy is yours, and the day is yours. And I who have crept about like a snail all my life know little of battles. Lead, and I will follow. Stark fingered the collar around his neck. Can you rid me of this? Treon nodded. There are tools and acid in one of the chambers. He found them and worked swiftly. And while he worked, Stark thought, smiling. And there was no pity in that smile at all. They came back at last into the temple, and Treon closed the entrance to the catacombs. It was still night, for the square was empty of slaves. Stark found Egil's weapon where it had fallen, on the ledge where Egil died. We must hurry, said Stark. Come on. End of section 10